The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in April 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we welcome Judith Ivey. Hi, Judith. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Let me just, uh, for our listeners, recap a, a few things. Everybody, of course, knows you from your television, your film, and your stage work, winning two Tony Awards as Best Featured Actress in a Play. Uh, steaming in 1983, Hurley Burley 1985, Drama Desk Awards for both of those as well, and also uh, nominated for a Tony for a Park Your Car in Harvard Yard or Harvard? How did you say it? Harvard Yard? Harvard. Harvard. Harvard Yard, <laughs> right. Tons of uh, film and television work. Of course, a season on designing women for television. Uh, the most recent uh, Clint Eastwood uh, movie, Flags of Our Fathers, movies including Harry and Son, Compromising Positions, The Woman in Red, The Long Hot Summer, Brighton Beach Memoirs, Sister, Sister. I could go on and on, but I won't. I'll say welcome. We know you as an actor, but now we're getting to know you the last several years as a director. You currently have a show running off-Broadway at the Cherry Lane Theater called Fugue. And rather than me telling our listeners what Fugue is all about, would you please start off by just telling us what the storyline is? Well, Fugue is a very rare form of amnesia. Um, although, you know, it's like anything. Recently, it seems like they've discovered everybody in the world who's ever had it. <laughs> they've been roaming the, the, the country. Um, and it's based upon the musical term, fugue, which is one musical phrase being chased by another musical phrase that repeats itself and a, a, a sense of running away. And when you are afflicted with this, there's usually some horrible traumatic experience that... Uh, basically cause a kind of personality break and you just pack up and you walk out the door and you're running away and you don't quite know who you are but you're not as uh, let's say uh, lost or distressed as someone with regular amnesia is who are wondering and, and have this sense of I, I'm, I should be somewhere else I don't know who I am uh, it, you you are seemingly perfectly happy with it because you are accepting wherever you are as long as you don't have to go back to who you really are and this is the story in Fugue of a woman who's found uh, riding the L in Chicago and strangely looking out the door as every time the, the train stops, looks around, and then stays on the train and keeps riding. And her feet are blistered and bloodied, and her shoes are torn up, and so they hospitalize her. And someone recognizes it as Fugue. And so the play is about her journey into who she really is, uh, coupled with uh, a young doctor who's assigned who has his own sort of demons that haunt him, and we find out both stories at the same time. And she's perfectly lucid. She just does not remember her past and or who she is. Exactly. And any time there's a trigger that gets close by, uh, you know, takes her to a closer uh, knowledge of herself, then she wants to literally put on her shoes and go running. And the doctor gives her a running suit, as a matter of fact, to get her to go out and, and exercise or exorcise it rather than um, try to escape and, and get out of their hands. So then, of course, nothing can be done for her. I guess the, the next logical question would be, how did you come to the work? How did you come it to was given it? to me as an actress, uh -huh. and I did a reading of it, and I have a, a plastic bin. I have several plastic bins in my house because I'm a Virgo, so I organize everything. <laughs> and um, I always have one for scripts that I loved, and for some reason I couldn't do them. 
and but they 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 spoke to me. So I just usually throw a script in in that bin that maybe I'll come back to it someday. And this one came back. And when it came back to me, I said, you know, I, I've moved into being a director and. I would like to throw my hat in the ring as a director rather than the actress. And I patiently waited, and it came my way. And uh, then this production was put together, um, somewhat based upon the fact that I would be the director of it. When did it first come to you? Because though most people think Fugue is a brand new play and the production mm-hmm. at Cherry Lane, it's actually a show that was done over 20 years ago with The Long Wharf. Right, with Barbara Berry. Uh, it was done at The Long Wharf, uh, uh, Long Wharf the Cleveland Playhouse, and... Is it Center Stage in Baltimore? It was a third one. And Barbara Berry played the role in all three productions. Uh, this came to me, I think, maybe five or six years ago Hmm. when I did a reading of it. And uh, the play, having been written in 1982, I think it was first produced in 85. And um, so they wanted to put a production together, what, So it was the Cherry Lane that brought it to you first as an actress? No, it was uh, the playwright, Lee Thuna, Uh uh, saw me in something. In fact, I was telling her, uh, since I am a Virgo and organized my calling card file, I was going through and pulling out old cards that I hadn't pulled out in a long time, and here was the card that Lee gave me when she first introduced herself to me. And I don't remember where that was (laughs) or when that was, but it's uh, uh, got her name and her number on it, and I still have that as well. So the choice, not the choice, but the difference of saying I'd like to direct this versus I would I would be in this. What are the elements of the show that first appealed to you as an actress and then appealed to you as a director? Well, the story is told in memory. And so as she starts to gain her memory, all these people from her past start to, to step in. Uh, I think that at at, at different times in her life. So as an actress, what was challenging was playing a woman who, in many ways, has nothing to do with the woman who's in the past. So you're finding two sides to one personality, or possibly even two personalities, because you adjust. You actually play yourself when you're 17 years old with your first love, and then you're the mom of your daughter, who's another character who steps in all of a sudden. Uh, Her mother and the whole progression of her relationship with her mother from 17 up to the day she died, the mother, uh, is there. So it's challenging finding a character through time stretched over that many years because she's in her 50s and you start at 17 and work your way up to present day, which we're saying is about 54, 55 years old. And uh, then as a director, it was how do you make all of those characters walk in and out of a room and be believable, understand that they're from the past, not make it look corny like people walking through the walls, you know, like ghosts and so on, because it's not really who they are in the story. And um, and build the suspense of, well, who is she? What happened to her? You know, what? Uh, what is the backstory? What horrible, terrible thing happened? And I think the way Lee has constructed it, she's beautifully constructed it so that you think it's one thing, and in the end, there's a, a, a final twist that you realize, oh, that's what sent her out the door and never to return. Well, there's a corollary to that. You've obviously had an incredibly successful acting career. John read off your litany of credits. 
why the choice to branch into directing? Really, it's been the, just the past few years that you've been particularly active as a director. Yeah, it's been about three years, I would say. Although I have to credit my friend Stephen Stout, who 13 years ago uh, was asked me to direct him in a play, and we chose two for the seesaw at the Westport Playhouse during the winter season, not the summer season. He had access to do something there. So he really gets credit for starting me off. Uh, I didn't pursue it at all. I had to be you know, coached into this or, or lured into it. But once the bug bit me, I'm, I'm kind of stuck right now. I can't let go of it. I'm fascinated by the whole process and how to make it better and how to do it better. The same way I was as an actress with acting, but now the, the focus has moved to directing. It's, it's kind of a... Um, I would love for it to be totally an artistic choice, but it's also somewhat of a financial necessity because uh, I won't be the first to talk about it. I'm a woman of a certain age, an actress of a certain age, and I don't care how much they want to moan about it. Actors, male actors, don't get to complain about this because it simply doesn't happen to them in the same way that it happens to actresses. So I'm just finding another means of making a living in a profession I've spent this many years in already. So why why become a computer programmer, you know, which would be impossible for me, first of all. But now that you're a director, does this preclude you being an actress as well? In other words, I don't do you plan yet. to continue acting? Yeah, I, I never say never, I say. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, uh, I will be acting in 2008. I already have a job lined up for that that fascinates me. But it's kind of hard to offer me something that fascinates me. Um, it's... Uh, uh, I was offered something, Shakespeare in the Park, this summer, and my daughter is graduating from high school, so we have a great big trip planned and all kinds of events, and I said, oh, no, there's no way I could go into rehearsal and and miss the end of my daughter's high school career. And I think my agents were taken aback a little (laughs) um, that I was, you know, um, willing to walk away so quickly. But I have to say, part of it is my heart isn't, in it in the same way that it certainly has been in decades ago. But it's also mom comes first and professional comes second. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So as you're looking through those big plastic organizer boxes that fill with scripts (laughs) that have come in, are you looking now as a director looks through scripts or still as an actor would look through or or both? Um, I would say probably more as a director. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I I giggle at myself because then if it's a script that I, oh, yeah, I remember, oh, and I'll get absorbed in it as an actress then. But I think that that's good. That means that the passion is still there. And then as a director, I find I step back and I, I'm looking at the overall picture rather mm-hmm. than just that character. And when I can do that, then I know that's something I could direct. I don't think I could do it with everything. Uh, I've been... It's kind of the litmus test of whether I want to be in it or whether I want to direct it because it has to do with how much I can extricate my own passion as an actress so that I'm not, God forbid, you know, telling an actress how to do it like I would do it, which would be horrible. I would hate me as much as she would hate me. (laughs) And are you taking second looks at scripts you may have passed over as an actress now, re-examining as a director would? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. There there are two or three that I, I passionately keep you know, pitching to various theaters around the country or producers of how great I think this is. And wouldn't they like to produce this (laughs) with me directing? (laughs) Of course, of course. 
as I look over the list of the more than 75 shows you have been in, you have been directed by some amazing directors. Yes. Alan Akeborn and Peter Hall, Mike Nichols, Norman Renee, Brian Murray, Chris Ashley, Zoe Caldwell. Um, I can't ask who you liked working with the most or least, because that wouldn't be fair. So I want to ask a slightly different version of the question. What, as an actor, was the best piece of direction you think you ever received? Well, as you read that uh, list of names, and thank you for not asking me that, because it's, of course, uh, until I say I don't want to be an actress, I I don't want to offend anybody (laughs) who might cast me. (laughs) Um, To add to that list... uh, I did a wonderful play called A Fair Country, written by John Robin Bates at Lincoln Center, and Daniel Sullivan directed it. And I was playing a woman who was a manic depressive, who was unmedicated uh, at a time where medication, I don't think, was even really dealt out the way that it is now. And um, Dan came up to me at one point and said, uh, you, this particular question you pose to this man is said with such sincerity that you expect him to answer you equally in its sincerity. But it's completely inappropriate to ask the question altogether. But she has no censor of that. So everything she does is done with great sincerity, with great passion, because she sees it all as appropriate where most of it is inappropriate. And the minute he said that to me, the inappropriateness of it, it all clicked. And I completely understood who I was playing. For the first time, and I would say this was, you know, towards the end of the third week of rehearsal. So even though I knew I was on the right track, I don't think I had an actual concrete description of who I was playing in my, you know, Data bank. I, I was still trying to figure out how I would describe her. And the minute he said that, it all fell into place. And it allowed you a freedom as this character that is hard to find because if you do have a sense of appropriateness, which hopefully I do as a human being, uh, you would censor yourself as an actress. You know, you would you would censor the behavior and not go far enough. But the minute he said it to me that way, I could, then I, the world is my oyster, and I could just be as outrageous as possible as long as you were being sincere and passionate. And that was what drove her and what drove her to say all these inappropriate, horrible things to people. And now as you think in your directing, you you see the insight that Dan Sullivan gave you at that moment. In your day, in your acting experiences, has there been something a director did that you would hope you would never do to another, to an actor, now that you're in the other role? Well, as I brought up, I would be loathe to um, stand up and say, do it like this. And I would have to say I've had <laughs> had it demonstrated to me. And it's, you know, the problem with it is you can never do it exactly like that because it's not your choice. It's somebody else's choice. And just demonstrating it doesn't necessarily make it work. I would say steaming. And it's a wonderfully hilarious moment in my rehearsal career of this wonderful guy, Roger Smith, who directed it, uh, 
who couldn't be more opposite to the character I was playing, first of all, because he was a man, but uh, I played an East End Cockney tart who was, you know, let's say, uh, very proud of her body, and Roger Smith was probably easily uh, 80 pounds overweight (laughs) (laughs) and uh, not pretty, and uh, the exact opposite, but he did get up, and, and he was trying to explain what East End meant. And since I was... You know, an American, am an American. I didn't quite get it. And he said, you know, darling, I hate doing this to you, but... And he got up and he did her. And that's the only time I think a director's ever gotten up and done something where, it, I, once again, it clicked and you got it and you could see it. But I think I wet my pants. I laughed so hard at this man of this man <laughs> <laughs> size and and look and everything doing an East End Cockney tart. It was one of my favorite moments ever. Um, I would hate it if I tried to get an actor to to mimic. Um, you know what I thought it should be. I've had ask, actors ask me for line readings, and I said I just hate giving those. I just hate. Yeah, I would rather you have the sense of what it is and give your interpretation rather than trying to say exactly with the same intonation and so on. Many times I will say, you know, at the risk of giving you a line reading, I think the operative word is can or whatever the word is in the sentence. And they're skimming over and jumping and using another word, which really distorts the, you know, the meaning of the sentence. But I would hate it if I had stooped to that. (laughs) I hope I never do. Well, it must be difficult, though, because you've been in so many different productions to not uh, say, well, I would do it this way. In other words, you must, in your mind, know how you would play the role, and to not be able to say that, how do you then address that with with the actor? You just... I really honestly don't think of it as, I would do it this way. Uh Um, I'm trying to find, when I sit and watch an actor struggle, and I think they're going in a wrong direction, or or I always say it isn't wrong, there's just a better direction, uh, I'm trying to find the language to communicate that that direction to them rather than this is the way I would do it. And I think that does come from all the wonderful directors I worked with. They were all incredibly um, articulate. And, uh, and, and, and they did not give you how they would do it. And most of them were actors first. Daniel Sullivan is, was an actor first. Mike Nichols was an actor first. Uh, uh, Alan Akeborn was an actor first. Sir Peter Hall, I believe, was an actor first. Everybody, so they had a sense of, of, of what the process is and respected it, and it was always uh, given to me in in a, a language that I could compute into action. So I'm kind of blessed that way, along with you know the directors who didn't do it. Then mm-hmm. you could always say, well, see, they don't have the language. They don't. They they do want to just demonstrate it to me. And all the years of going in as an actress, auditioning for directors to get cast as a part, and many times getting accepted, many times getting rejected. Mm-hmm. What has that taught you now about being a director, where you now you get to cast the actors? Oh, they're teasing me. I'm in casting right now for the next thing I'm directing, and they, they're they teasing me how long I take, you know, because I'm so generous with uh, the time and, and letting people get through a whole scene and not cutting them off and not, you know, uh, one actress. I, I always come around the table and shake hands and meet them, and uh, uh, 
she said, oh, my goodness, you're, you're coming up and shaking my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, it makes you feel good, doesn't it? You know, it makes you feel welcome because uh, it's a horrible process to have to audition for people. It's, it's not happy. And uh, I think that that's the job of the director at that point is to make it as happy as possible because you're going to get a better audition. So you may actually find the person you need if you make it safe for them and, um, you know, welcoming. Hmm. Well, we're spending all this time talking about what you've learned from your acting career and how you're <laughs> applying it as a director. Let's talk a bit about your acting career. I mean, how did you how did you get started? You were uh, you were originally born in Texas and mm-hmm. then moved, uh, ended up uh, Illinois State University. Yeah. Um, but. What what prompted you into theater, and, and what were your what were your first breaks? Well, I did move a lot as a kid, and uh, I think, I always say, uh, unwittingly, I was being trained as an actress, because you always had to go in and join the group again, and so there was a certain amount of acting that went on. Um, but I was an art student. Uh, everyone expected me to be a painter or graphic artist, something in the visual arts. And uh, the last move that I had to make meaning I still lived with my parents. Um, I was a junior in high school, and I just hated them for doing that to me. And I had boyfriends. I was a cheerleader. I was, you know, secretary of the student council. I worked on the school newspaper. And all of a sudden, I was uprooted and moved to a little town called Marion, Illinois, which made all their choices for all of those offices and so on in ninth grade, of all things. And uh, I was a bit like, you know, the presidency. They, the, You got in for four years. And so I got there, and I couldn't be any of those things. Uh, I couldn't join this club. I couldn't do that. And But one of the things I could do was be in the school play. And my sister, who's two years younger, Sarah, um, was the actress, and she had been in all of the acting things. So I thought, well... What the hell? You know, I'll go do that. And I was Miss Preen in The Man Who Came to Dinner, Miss Bedpan, as Sheridan Whitesides calls her. And I was funny. And that kind of got me. I liked making people laugh, which I had always done, I guess, as a human being. But um, here it was formalized. And everybody encouraged me. So the last two years of high school, I was in speech contests and did serious reading and comedy reading and duet acting and um, won a lot of tournaments and so on and was in all, you know the school events. And uh, a professor, Dr. Marion Kleinow uh, at SIU Carbondale, was a judge at a lot of these state events. And she asked me, knowing that my father was president of a two-year school in southern Illinois, which is why we moved there, um, if where I was going to go to college. And I said to, to my dad's school, because I knew she knew him. And she said, oh, no, you're not. And she called my father and said, you know, your daughter needs to be training as a professional actress. This is what she should be doing. What every parent wants to hear. (laughs) 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 And um, so since it was news to our family, he, uh, he said, well, where do you recommend? And so I went to uh, SIU Edwardsville and auditioned and Illinois State University and auditioned. And they considered some other schools. I I think it, you know, I'm so old, I can't remember now. I I just remember those two. And I got a scholarship at at Illinois State University in their professional acting and directing program. 
and it was rather new to that school. It was so new that they hadn't even developed a Bachelor of Arts degree. It was a, still a Bachelor of Science. So I say appropriately, I have a BS <laughs> in uh, acting and directing. And um, it was a very volatile time at that university. It was very uh, uh, four professors who were uniquely very gifted and talented, which I didn't know at the time. I certainly appreciate it now. And they... Um, fought with each other and were hard on all their students and um, Steppenwolf Theater is from that same university and uh, a lot of classmates uh, as well have gone on to uh, great things in this particular profession because of that time at that university and I still after all of that did not believe I would ever be a professional actress but here I was with a college degree and I went to Chicago and it took me about nine months and I got my first uh, professional job uh, selling a a bologna in a TV commercial (laughs) and uh, I spent the next five years getting all my union cards and and making around 50 national commercials I mean with this face in the Midwest you know I sold everything under the sun made a great living worked with some incredible people Brian Murray came to do um, The Philanthropist and I was uh, uh, an understudy as well as I had a part in the, I think it's the third act. Is there three acts to that play? No, I guess it's the second act, um, where I never spoke. And she comes to a dinner party, and this character never speaks. And Brian worked with me. I was 20, what was I, 24? Maybe not even quite 24. 24 years old. And I learned so much about acting in that one production through that one actor, um, I understudied Swoosie Kurtz. That was how I met Swoosie. And it was a, 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 just an amazing cast that all came to Chicago. So I always tell students that I think unwittingly the next smartest thing I ever did besides marry my husband was uh, I started in Chicago. So I've given you a very long-winded backstory that uh, – I was prepared to come to New York, and I had a resume, and I had credits, and I had been given opportunities that, had I come to New York directly, would never have come my way. So, But continue the st- backstory. Then how did you come <laughs> from Chicago to New York? Well, then I, I suffered from what I call the regional theater disease, which was as long as you lived there, they, they were, there was a ceiling, especially if you were um, a young woman. And they were bringing young actresses from New York to play parts. And I would always be the second or third character. And twice they came to me and said, we think we're going to fire the ingenue. Would you step in if we do that? Well, they wouldn't fire her. And finally, the last time it happened, they not only did not fire her, the show went on tour and they went and got yet another actress from New York. So it was very clear to me that there was... Uh, a concept that you, if you lived there and you were a regional actress, they weren't going to support you the same way this, as they would actresses from New York and fly them out, and it was very exotic and so on. So I finally decided, because I went on tour with that production, and we came east to explore, and I found an agent and so on, so I decided to pack up my you know, belongings and 
come to New York and see if anything I could get a job going back to Chicago, maybe, you know, because I didn't live there anymore. So your goal was to work in New York to return to Chicago yeah. in, a, in a bigger role. Right, right. <laughs> and I ended up going to D.C. when oh. I moved here. I, I, I think I the first three jobs that I did regionally were all in D.C. at three different theaters. But I ended up being an understudy on Broadway um, nine months after I got here and um, and replaced the actress, wonderful actress, who's no longer with us, Susan Littler, in Bedroom Farce. And I understudied her and um, Polly Adams. And um, when it came time to replace, um, I call him Sir Robert Whitehead. He's he was our knighted um, producer, wonderful man, who was always kind to me, um, made Sir Peter Hall come and see the understudy rehearsal. And Sir Peter Hall thought he was out of his mind because understudies, as explained to me, I don't, I don't call myself an expert on this, understudies in Great Britain are a little bit different caliber than in the United States. And so he thought, why am I wasting my time coming to see somebody who can't act. And indeed, he saw what Mr. Whitehead was saying to him. And so I got the replacement job out of all the understudies. And that really began my exposure um, to the New York theater scene. And I had a wonderful time. I spent about six months on, on Broadway. Um, and we'll never forget the curtain rising, you know, and I was, my character was in bed. And so you had to be in bed, supposedly asleep, when the curtain rose. And Bedroom Farce had three different bedrooms. And I was the middle bedroom. And I can remember oop, I can remember the, the curtain rising as I'm lying in bed. Um, you know, and here it is, my Broadway <laughs> debut. It was so exciting. I'll never forget. It gives me chills even now. Well, that, um, was, that was in 1979. Three years later, winning a Tony Award for steaming must have been quite... Exciting in the same sort of a way. Oh, yeah. Plus, I never imagined uh, steaming closed very early. Uh-huh. And uh, therefore, I didn't expect anybody to remember my performance, that it was way too far away from when, you know, when they start nominating and all those mm-hmm. things. So I just went for the party. <laughs> I just thought, ooh, goody, I get to go to a great big splashy party and wear a splashy dress and, you know, have well, all the excitement of that. Well, how, how, how did you get that role? It was Josie was the role? Yeah, I auditioned actually in California. I remember having a meltdown. I was just thinking about this the other day. Uh, I was doing a play in California, directed by Norman Renee, and um, this job came up. And in fact, someone from Actors' Equity in New York had called me and said, you know, we want you to know that we have uh, rejected... uh, them bringing the actress from Great Britain, that that's what these producers wanted to do. And we've told them that there are actresses here who can play that part, uh, play all the parts for that matter. And uh, we want you to know that, that we had you in mind. And when they asked us who, we said your name. So I called up my agent and I told them and they said, okay, and they found out about it. Well, uh, since they're no longer my agent, they were California agents. And so they thought that it was silly for me to tie up my life doing a 
play. <laughs> and so um, they were rather cavalier about it. And uh, I went to somebody's house and auditioned. I can't even remember now where it was. I just remember it was a great big living room. And uh, I auditioned for it. And they literally walked me out to my car. So I knew that I had done probably a pretty good job and they got very excited about it and of course they were seeing the person who had been recommended by everybody because then somebody else told me they had recommended me and it was just like it was like destiny I was supposed to play this part and I called my agents and I had gotten a TV movie that was going to run right up schedule wise bank to bank with um, going to New York to start rehearsals. And so I kept saying, well, you have to sort this out, you know, so and they were being very cavalier. And I just, back to what I was going to say, I had a meltdown on a pay phone outside of a, um, I believe it was a, a, oh, what is that burger chain? Uh, it's got a big yellow star on it. Now I can't remember in California, but it was one that I always stopped at because it was sort of midway and I'd get a burger. And so I'd stopped and gotten a burger and called them and they were just being so indifferent about it. And I remember it's, I'm not a yeller, but it was one of the few times I ever yelled at somebody and said, you're not taking this importantly enough. You don't get it. I'm going to get this part. I just know I am. <laughs> so, and I did. And uh, I shot the TV movie and... Ended up coming to rehearsal one day late because it ran over. And uh, that was the days when I smoked. And I remember I, at one point I had two cigarettes in my hand, waiting for, hoping we were going to wrap so I could get on the plane and, and, and leave. And Cloris Leachman was in the movie. And she sat me down and made me have a conversation with my cigarette. Um, <laughs> which just drove me insane, but she hated smokers, so she was trying to convert me from smoking. Doing a little improv with your cigarette. Yes. <laughs> Why do you think everybody thought this role was for you? Obviously, they were right, but it's so unusual to hear that even equity is recommending people I know. for specific parts. It's great. Uh, well, to tell you the truth, when I came to New York, every role I got was a British role. To the point that at one point I asked my agent, why do I never audition at the public theater? And in those days, the public theater didn't do anything but American plays and then Shakespeare in the Park. And um, Mary Cahoon um, was the casting director at the time, and she uh, said, and she's British, uh, said, uh, well, well, she's British, darling. You know, And he said, no, she's not. She's from Texas. And so then I got to audition at the public theater. So apparently people thought... So you were the great English discovery breaking <laughs> through on the American stage. Yes. A girl from El Paso. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think that was the main reason. They knew I could do it because that was what I had done thus far in New York. And, and then the credits, as I say... Uh, in D.C. were all British. It was Noel Coward. It was Whose Life Is It Anyway? You know, it was, I, it, I, for some reason, I just tapped into that. So you finally got your slice of Americana, if we can call it that, uh, <laughs> a little over about a year, year and a half later, um, with Hurley Burley. That has to have been extraordinary for people who don't remember that original production. It started first at the Promenade off-Broadway. Well, it actually started in uh, Chicago at oh, the Goodman Theater my, first. My mistake. So the Goodman, the Promenade, Mike Nichols directing with a cast that included not only Judith Ivey, but William Hurt, Christopher Walken, uh, Jerry Stiller, Sigourney Weaver, Harvey Keitel, and a young Cynthia Nixon. Mm -hmm. What was working in that company like? 
Well, it was extraordinary. It's got to be one of the best things that uh, ever happened to me, from A to Z, uh, maybe twice over, double A to double Z. It was, um, I did a reading of it with a completely, I think Sigourney and I were the only two. I think it was a completely different cast. And, you know, I played a character who came in in the second act. And so for the first act, I sat there with Peter Regert and George Zunza. And I think, was it Danny Aiello who went on, went into it later? Um, it was it, yet another extraordinary group. And um, I just will never forget Mike Nichols wiping his eyes from laughing, you know, crying from laughing so hard, which just, I figured I never had to even do this again. If you could make him laugh that hard in a reading it, whether they cast me or not didn't matter but the weeks ticked by and the it became known that we were going to do it in Chicago and try it out there first and it ended up being of course a completely different group of people uh, William Hurt I knew we were friends from the past um, of course Sigourney I knew from the reading uh, Cynthia I didn't know I'm trying to think. Uh, Harvey, of course, I knew of, and Chris Walken I knew of, and certainly Jerry Stiller I knew of. Uh, but we all came together, and it was uh, probably the most volatile cast I've ever been involved mm. with. And uh, one of the more creative moments. And it's certainly where I learned a lot about directing, because I would sit and watch Mike direct not only be the recipient of it, but watch him and how he worked with people and uh, his approach to all of it. Uh, working with David Rabe, who's one of the great American writers, uh, listening to his thoughts about why he chose that, why this. Because we were, you know, we were creating this play. We were tearing it apart and putting it back together and what was going to be in this production versus what he originally wrote. Um, and the character I played, I think, was maybe one of the best ones in the play because she was the voice of reason and got to turn to all these jerks and say, hey, you're jerks. And and that was what David intended. Uh, a lot of people didn't necessarily understand that at the time because he was kind of coming in through the back door. But the whole experience, it was 1984, actually, was the entire year um, was devoted to doing that play in my career because I stayed with it and stayed with it and stayed with it and left the show on New Year's Eve along with Bill and Harvey. And uh, I always remember Jerry Stiller had a New Year's Eve party, so we were all um, at, at his house. It was our last time together um, as a cast, so it was great. I mean, Sigourney had left at that point, and Chris Walken had left, and Ron Silver had replaced him. So uh, we weren't the original team, but uh, we were, you know, together as a cast, that cast, uh, that night. And then it was 1985. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask, as I look at your credits, it's very interesting. You're talking about actors that you knew before. I notice you've worked several times, both on stage and on film, with Blythe Danner. Mm -hmm. And is that ever been an opportunity that it happens by design or just a coincidence that you keep being cast together in shows? 
Well, I guess we, you know, we look like we can be sisters, so we've played sisters. Uh, once again, the, the British thing. Um, we did uh, Blythe Spirit, a revival of that, and uh, um, you know, uh, I used to tease her if she were weren't so tall, I would have played her part. Um, it's sort of w- the Mutt and Jeff, the two of us. We were a great balance together that way. And uh, um, uh, we love each other. We love being together. Or, uh, well, I should. I think she would say the same thing about me. Uh, we we just really enjoy one another. So the minute that the uh, the offer comes, there's no question. You don't sit back and say, "Oh, I don't know, Blythe." You know, <laughs> it's like, "Oh, goody, Blythe." So uh, when we did Follies together, we shared a dressing room because the theater was so small. Everybody was packed in like the poor. You know, three to a bed, and uh, so we shared a dressing room that was tiny, and we kind of giggled that how smushed we were but we loved it and uh, we warmed up together we told stories together we cried together we laughed together it was it was uh, yet another amazing experience and uh, I adore her she's one of the kindest people I think in this business and um, generous to a fault you know she she could be afford to be a little more selfish but well you mentioned the follies and at the time, your Playbill bio commented that it was your first Broadway musical production. Mm-hmm. Um, subsequent to doing that, you've done uh, Little Night Music out in L.A. Mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well. Were there musicals along the way, or was this really the first opportunity you'd had to do musicals at all since you were since you were much younger? Certainly, no, I started out doing musicals. Really? I did Summer Stock, where I did four musicals every summer, big productions, and... Uh, then every, I don't know, three or four years, someone would ask me to do a musical or a musical workshop, and I would do it. And um, I recently did a musical, wor- not workshop, but one of those glorified presentations of uh, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas with Joe Mantello directing. And... Um, I promised myself that if I would stick with that and do that, per, that finish that presentation, that I would never have to do another musical again. <laughs> and Why I'm do you sticking say that? to it. Why do you say that? I don't have the personality for it. It's too nerve wracking for me, and uh, I don't devote enough time to singing lessons and dancing lessons and all those things that one needs to do in order to be able to pop in at a given moment and do something like that. And I just decided that that if I could get through that, then I would, I'm not a quitter, but never again would I say I would do a musical, because it it requires a certain personality that I don't have. Uh, I finally learned that over 30-some-odd years. It's... um, it, it it it's just a different uh, mindset, and I'm not even sure that I can tell you what the difference is. But I don't have it, and likewise, there are people who do musicals more than they do. Oh, I hate the phrase straight plays. Um, but uh, and they don't transfer well in that direction either. Uh, they the the there's an in depth exploration as an actor because. You know, by the way, you don't have to sing and dance while you're doing it. Um, that uh, a lot of times, I think actors in, in in musicals lose that muscle. It doesn't mean they don't have it, but you can lose it because a musical doesn't require that kind of 
um, deep down exploration. The script doesn't allow for it. So you don't have to do it. It's that simple. But you have to be able to do all three. And I, you know, I, I love singing and I am the best audience member in the world when it comes to a musical. Nobody is better than me. <laughs> but, um, I do not have the personality to get up there and, and do all three. I am in awe of anyone who does it. So let's bring this full circle to where we started the conversation. You're involved in a developing production of a musical version of the play Vanities. Right. Directing a musical, mm-hmm. that would seem to be a new a new venture. Right. And in light of your feeling about the the act, acting in musicals, how do you how do you feel about undertaking well, I think directing? It, it's one? the perfect place for me to be because I, I you know the director is the ultimate audience member, and uh, um, and I know I have the experience of it. I know what they're going through. I know what they have to do when you have to run backstage and change your clothes in nine seconds and come back out. You know, a little night music being the perfect example of that, that wonderful, um, uh, what is it, hi-ho, the glamorous life. That's it, where you change clothes, you know. It, 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 uh, that's just one of the most amazing things I've ever had to do in my career. And then run out there and sing again, you know, and not be out of breath. Um, I, I totally get it. I totally understand it. I think that my experience w- helping create and and dramaturg plays uh, is all to my advantage as a director, and I think that working on a new musical uh, requires a lot of that. So I think I'm in the perfect place, you know, uh, as long as they're not reliant on me to actually do it. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like you're having a lot of fun. I'm having a ball. (laughs) I'm very happy where I am. My husband teases me. He He said, I've never seen you so happy in the last, what, eight or nine years in terms of my my profession. Well, it turns out to have been a fortuitous move on your parents' part when you were in high school to move you to Illinois to end up in acting rather than becoming a painter. So Isn't you, that amazing? You've, yeah. been, you've been acting, you're directing. Uh, what what have you not done that you would like to do? Oh, my goodness. Paint, perhaps, or anything else? With, with well, the yeah, I've gone back to... Uh, I've become an intense watercolor enthusiast, so I guess if I could... I actually have sold some watercolors, but on a very low level. So I guess if I could actually become somebody that, you know, sold their their visual art, that would be astounding to me that I that I would be respected to that, you know, at that level uh, as a painter. That would be something I'm already see I'm I'm already hemming and hawing because I can't believe that would ever happen. (laughs) How about in terms of theater? Any uh, any beyond what you're currently doing in your your upcoming production? Anything else that you're looking? Oh, I have you know that plastic bin is still still uh, Still full of all kinds of uh, ideas, and I have ideas for for some classics that you know I I would love a a crack at trying to make that happen. I, I've become fascinated with all that goes on uh, on the internet, and I'm trying to, you know, I guess, educate myself because I think it's a place where actors and directors, for that matter, um, are have an outlet that that's all new and we don't know what it is, and and it's uh, to be explored. Uh, I think it's certainly not a place to ignore. Um, uh, I would I would hate to you know become a sort of a dinosaur 
in this business for for not paying attention to how the times they are a changing you know and and we we redefine our space all the time as theater artists uh, I get so excited with um all the technical stuff that's uh available now um this um how they can hologram um you know people in i I was just reading about something I can't remember the show now where the they aged the man. So you got to see the actor as himself, and then they had created a hologram of him being older. It was a performance piece. And I thought, oh, my gosh. I mean, you know, there's Hamlet right there. Where, mm-hmm. what, what can we do with the ghost? You know, there, there are all kinds of technical things that, that are making our world, I guess, in a way more cinematic, um, for lack of a better phrase, uh, but equally theatrical, you know, it's the it's the hard thing when you sit down as a writer, which I'm not, but the many many writers I've worked with, and you're confined to a space. Then how how do you make that compete with where the world of film can take you? Because they can just in a splash, you're in a, a whole other country and a whole other environment, and the theater has to compete with that. It has to find a a, a way to exist. Because I think audiences love sitting in the room with you and having that immediate experience instead of the, you know, the reserve and the remove of a movie goes on whether you're, you know, going to the bathroom or not. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I guess the play goes on whether you go to the bathroom <laughs> or not, too, for that matter. But there's... Um, you know what I mean. There's mm-hmm. the immediate the, the exchange. It's it's. I'm a complete theater snob. I am very grateful for all the opportunities in film and television that have been given to me. Uh, but in the end, the most fulfilling is being in the room with an audience and uh, having that response, be it tears, be it laughter. Hmm. Well, on that note, <laughs> which is quite a good way to conclude, yeah. Judith, Judith, I oh, we're fi- done already. It, it flies past us. Do- it? it does. You guys are great. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with us today on Thank Downstage you. Center. Thanks, Judith. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. Thank you. The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.